We have the pleasure and honor now of turning in God's Word to our scripture lesson for the sermon, which will be a very short scripture reading today as we just begin the book of the prophet Joel. I'm just going to read Joel chapter 1, verse 1, and then we'll be doing an introduction, as I said, to the to the book today, so that you'll be a little more familiar with the, the context and the content of the book, and then we'll do our deep dive starting next week, Lord willing. Well, this is God's holy word, as he gave to Joel the prophet. And these are the words with which the book begins. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's inspired and therefore inerrant word. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you have given your word to prophets and to apostles in the past, that we have an infallible revelation of your will for us and of yourself to us. We pray that we would ever use it guided by your Holy Spirit, that we might learn of you and of ourselves. So we pray now that as we consider your word today, that we would grow in our understanding both of ourselves and of you. Help us to understand some of the history surrounding the Old Testament, that we might better Apply these words to our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, recently we finished a sermon series through 1 Corinthians, uh, which began, as I was looking, on May 15th of 2022, so about a year and a half ago. And of course there were breaks for the Lord's Supper and for vacations and illnesses and so on, but... I believe there were 57 sermons in that series. Uh, My intention is eventually here to move to 2 Corinthians and to be connecting the two. Uh, As far as New Testament scriptures go, I want to get into 2 Corinthians. But seeing that we've been in the New Testament for so long, it seems like a good idea for us to spend a little time in the Old Testament. Uh, Joel is a rather short book. Uh, though I expect to get about 10 sermons out of this book. So, Lord willing, uh, we'll spend a couple months or so uh, in Joel, and then we'll get back to the New Testament after that. Today I want to offer just a bit of an introduction to the book of Joel. That's why I only used the first verse of the whole book here as our scripture lesson. But we'll consider a few things. Number one, who the author is. Uh, Number two, uh, when he prophesied when he wrote this book, and then third, uh, the general themes of the book. The exhortation for today will simply be, which is something, some ideas that we get from the whole book itself, or the book as a whole, repent of your sins, believe the promises of God, uh, which is to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills God's promises, God's promises and, and do these things in sincerity of heart. So let's consider, first of all, who is the author? Joel 1.1 says, The word of the Lord 
that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So we know his name's Joel. That's, that's, thus far, we know that much. In Hebrew, his name would mean something like Yahweh is God. With faithful parents, he probably had to give him such a name. Yahweh is God. Now, there are several men who bear that name in the Old Testament. Uh, from what we can discern from this book about the prophet's historical circumstances, nothing actually seems to fit any of the other Joels that we find in the Old Testament. That is, uh, only a few of them might have lived at a time like the one described in the book of Joel, but none of them had a father named Pethuel, or any variant of that. Uh, for example, First Chronicles tells us several things. In First Chronicles, we find that there's an ancestor of the prophet Samuel who bears this name, the name of Joel. Likewise, Samuel had a son named Joel. And there was an ancient rabbi who spent a lot of time trying to, to sort of finagle things, and I think he, he was reading a lot in between the lines of Scripture, kind of forcing a lot of things in there uh, that, that uh, weren't there to make it appear. He was convinced that Joel, the son of Samuel, was the man who wrote this. Uh, the historical circumstances don't seem to fit, though. There are four Joels mentioned in the lifetime of King David. There was an officer from the tribe of Issachar, uh, there was one of David's mighty men who was a brother of Nathan the prophet, so we might think, well, maybe, maybe this guy uh, was, was also a prophet. But again, some things about the circumstances don't seem to fit. Uh, there was a Levite who helped David bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and who oversaw the temple treasury or the treasury uh, as David was preparing to construct a temple. And there was an officer from the tribe of Manasseh. In the days later of King Hezekiah, there's a Joel who was a chieftain from the tribe of Simeon. There was another who was a chieftain or a prince from Reuben. And there was a Levite who assisted Hezekiah as he reestablished Orthodox worship. After the Babylonian exile, there are two Joels mentioned in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, none of these really seem to fit the circumstances that are described here in the book of Joel. Either we know the historical context doesn't fit the events described, or we know that the man was not the son of someone named Pethuel. Or both. While we're on that, we'll just note that Pethuel may mean something like open-heartedness toward God, or it might actually be a mistake in the Masoretic text, though it's pretty hard to find any copyist errors in, in those texts. But the Septuagint, the ancient translation of the Old Testament into Greek, uh, has the name as Bethuel. If that's correct, his name would mean something like our house is God or dweller with God. But we can tell from the way that Joel the prophet talks of Jerusalem so much in the book that he probably lived there. 
but he speaks to the priests as if he's not one of them. So we have a good notion that he lived in Jerusalem, but he's not a priest. He might have been a Levite who worked in the temple, as Nathan Eshelman asserts in his article a while back in the RP Witness from March and April of 2023. But other Bible scholars are equally convinced that he was not a Levite. He was not somebody who labored in the temple. I think we can say that he was probably not a priest for sure, but whether or not he was a Levite is probably uncertain. What we do know is that as verse 1 indicates, he was a prophet. He was a man to whom the word of the Lord was revealed. As we see, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So the word of the Lord came to him. As John Calvin says, but we may conclude that he taught at Jerusalem, or at least in the kingdom of Judah, as Hosea was appointed a prophet to the kingdom of Israel. Hosea is the book right before Joel, in your Bibles you'll notice. As Hosea was appointed a prophet to the kingdom of Israel, so Joel had another appointment for he was to labor especially among the Jews, by which uh, Calvin there is referring to the people of the kingdom of Judah. They were, in this period, the, the Israelites were separated into two different kingdoms from the time of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, on. And uh, the northern kingdom continued to be called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And so he's referring here to the people of the kingdom of Judah, which is actually where we get our word Jew from. And so that's what Calvin's saying here. He's saying that, Joel was specially appointed to labor in the kingdom of Judah and not among the ten tribes. This deserved to be particularly, or he says, this deserves to be particularly noticed. So that's what we know about Joel personally. Not a whole lot. We can tell he probably lived in or around Jerusalem and that he was probably not a priest. <laughs> that's, that's about the limit of what we know about him personally. We know his dad's name was Pethuel. But secondly, we can consider his time frame. This also is a bit fuzzy. It's very hard to pin down Joel's historical context. So how could I say then that none of the other Joels of the Bible seem to fit the historical context? Well, obviously, most of them we have their father's name, and we know it's not Pethuel, so we eliminate them. But it's clear that the prophet Joel witnessed a plague of locusts predicted a military invasion to come soon as well. So there's a plague of locusts, as we'll see as we get into chapter 1 in the weeks to come, Lord willing. We'll see that, that there's this plague of locusts and a drought that have just happened and are ongoing, or at least the drought is ongoing. And then we know that there's going to be an invasion of an enemy army. And so we would have to put... Joel at a time of famine when there's an invasion of an enemy army about to happen. The famines are a little harder to pin down scripturally, but uh, only those Joels that I mentioned who were contemporary with King Hezekiah, who reigned from about 715 to 687 BC, only they would have experienced the kind of military invasion that Joel is predicting here. But again, none of them have the father named Pethuel, so we eliminate them as well. Some ancient Jewish scholars placed him in the reign of King Joram of Israel in the northern kingdom, but again, the fact that it's so focused on Jerusalem 
seems to eliminate that. The famine in Joram's time did not seem to affect the southern kingdom or the city of uh, Jerusalem where Joel is most concerned. It's likely but not certain that Joel prophesied sometime before the Assyrian invasion of Judah. Assyria invaded the northern kingdom and destroyed it in the city or in the, the year of uh, 722 BC but then invaded Judah a bit later, around 701 B.C., and were driven out eventually by the Lord. So Joel could have been a contemporary of King Hezekiah. Maybe he was proclaiming this just before Hezekiah became king and enacted his reforms. The language and expressions found in the book are consistent with that time frame, so that at least gives us a better guess that that might be when it was but it's not particularly clear. So we're left with Calvin's conclusion, though he goes on in his commentary to uh, talk as if it seems very likely that, that we're talking about the Assyrian invasion of Judah. He says, as there is no certainty, it's better to leave the time in which he taught undecided, and we shall see this as of no great importance. So, uh, Calvin and I also in this series will probably be talking a lot about this being likely the Assyrian invasion that happened around 701 BC. But if it's not, if it's some other invasion of an enemy, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference in terms of what we learn from Joel. That brings us to our third consideration then. What do we learn from Joel? What are the general themes of the book? Though the book was clearly written within a particular historical context, when a plague of locusts had stricken the land, and just before an enemy invasion, the themes are timeless. Which is why Calvin says that that being certain of when the book was written isn't really all that important. As Nathan Eshelman points out in his article I mentioned earlier, the, the major themes are a call to repentance and assurances of the mercies of God. In chapter 1, we'll see a call for the people to mourn the circumstances that they're in right now and to return to solemn worship of the Lord and to fast and seek His will. Predictions of destruction from an invading army in chapter 2 after that devastation uh, that's caused by locusts and drought lead to a call for open repentance and return to the Lord. So we know it had to have happened at a time like that preceding the days of Hezekiah when the nation needed to repent and was not uh, not faithful to the Lord. And this will be followed by pictures of the land restored, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, salvation through faith, judgment on the enemies of God's people and blessings for the faithful. So there's a lot of Darkness at the, in the first half of the book and a lot of light in the second half of the book. Not to say that the book isn't God's light. I'm just pointing out that, that it's predicting or speaking of a lot, of a lot of trouble, a lot of affliction, a lot of difficulty, and then all of the joys and the glories that come from faithfulness to God thereafter. People of all times and walks of life are called to heed these things in this book. Elders, the inhabitants of the land, drunkards, virgins or young women, priests, farmers, mothers, brides and bridegrooms. The first half of the book, as I mentioned, is 
dominated by this call to repentance and warning of the coming dangers for the sins of the people. And the second half of the book is dominated by predictions of God's grace and mercy toward his people and judgment on their enemies. So the second half of the book's pretty dark if you're not on God's side. But if you're one of God's people, it's a joyful, glorious thing. Both halves connect judgment and mercy to the concept of the day of the Lord. And we'll have a particular sermon on the day of the Lord as we get into chapter 2. And pivotal to all of this is chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Of course, in several weeks' time we'll get to that passage and we'll dig more into what it's talking about. Lord willing, we'll do that, uh, not sure how many weeks from now, but, but for now, note that, that that passage is right in the middle of this book. The whole book, as it were, centers around those words, pivots on them. And it's interesting that that actually is talking about a very pivotal time in history because in Acts chapter 2, Peter will quote those very verses after preaching his sermon or declaring in his sermon on Pentecost about 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven on the day when the Holy Spirit came in a special way upon the church. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and then he quotes those verses I just quoted. That is to say, he's saying, this thing that you witness of the disciples of Jesus speaking in tongues unknown to them, but known to many of you who are here, speaking forth the the mighty works of God, the fulfillment of Scripture, this itself is a fulfillment of Scripture. Joel 2.28-32. And then he goes on to proclaim that Jesus, who was crucified by the hands of lawless men, rose up from the dead, demonstrating that he is the Lord's anointed and holy one, and that there is no other name therefore under heaven whereby men can be saved. Likewise, in Romans 10, Paul connects those words to Jesus Christ, declaring in verse 9, that in order to be saved, it is necessary to confess that Jesus is Lord. And then down in verse 13, he quotes Joel 2.32, saying, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
So Paul, and we'll deal with this more in detail later, Lord willing, but he directly teaches that calling on Jesus as Lord is the same thing as calling on the name of the Lord in Joel 2.32. In other words, Jesus is Yahweh. And those promises of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and of salvation through calling on the Lord are central to this whole book. As we see in this book, the Lord are called to repent, or the Lord is calling rather his people to repent, to trust in him, and to do that in sincerity of heart. And we see in chapter 2, starting around verse 18, And the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer his people and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. And he's going to restore to them the things that they have lost. But back we see, what is, what is he going to do that for? Why would he do that? Well, it's because they have repented as he has called them to do. So he's saying, if you repent as I'm calling you to do, I'll restore these things that you're losing and have lost and are going to lose. Back in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. So this is Joel 2.15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. And then he has them praying that God would spare them. And all of that, if they have, as we go backwards again, go back to verse 12 in Joel 2. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So there has to be a wholeheartedness, a genuineness of heart. So we know little about Joel personally. Not much about the man who wrote this book is known at all. We can only surmise certain things from the book itself. We know he was a prophet. We know his father was named Pethuel, or possibly Bethuel. We can surmise that he labored in or around Jerusalem, but that he was probably not a priest. We can guess that he may likely have ministered as a prophet sometime in the late 8th century B.C., a little bit before and during the, the reign of King Hezekiah, sometime around the time that Hezekiah ruled in Jerusalem and before the Assyrians invaded in 701 B.C., That would make him the rough contemporary of the prophet Isaiah as well. There are many other prophets like Hosea and Micah who probably lived around that time as well. The fact that he predicts this invasion by an enemy and that that is soon to come, along with the, the style of the Hebrew and the expressions used in the book, would make that period just before the Assyrians invaded Judah a likely time for his ministry in Jerusalem, but again, we can't be certain. We can make reasonable speculations, but we can't build our doctrine on it for sure because we don't know for sure. What we can be certain of is that his words are relevant to all generations, and we're going to see many ways in which these words can apply to us and to our nation in our own time. 
In Joel, the Lord exhorts his people, repent of your sins. So we just read some of the scriptures calling for that repentance. Believe the promises of God. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on his name for salvation. So that's your exhortation today. That's our exhortation for today. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them and turn to the Lord. As he says in chapter 2, Turn to me with all your heart. 2.12 Flee to him. Our tendency as sinners... So when we sin, we want to try to hide them from God as if we could, and we we run away from Him. And what we ought to be doing as God's people when we stumble in sin is we run to Him. Flee to Him. Ask Him to help you overcome that sin. To put your sin to death. Cling to Him as your source of righteousness. You can't be righteous in and of yourself. So turn to Him, flee to Him, cling to Him. Call on His name, on the name of the Lord, for salvation from the consequences of your sins and from your very sinfulness itself. For those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we see the connection between 2.28 to 32 and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that means calling upon Jesus Christ in faith. Call upon Jesus in faith. For to do such things in sincerity with your heart is to be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the timeless message contained in the book of the prophet Joel. And we know in your providence that's a likely reason that You have not revealed to us the exact historical period in which Joel was written, but it is a timeless book. Grant that we might, by your grace, repent and keep repenting of our sins. Grant that we might ever turn to you and flee to you, and that by your strength and power, sin will be overcome in our lives. Save us as we call upon the name of Jesus Christ, that we might be delivered from the calamities which our sins deserve, and from our very sinfulness itself. That with sincerity we might cling to you alone for salvation as we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.